let me say good morning to all of you. That would be much better. Thank you. So this morning we're starting a four-part series um, based on the book of Habakkuk. Um, I always want to say Habakkuk, because that just once you get going, it's kind of hard to stop. Um, Habakkuk. It's not a book that's probably preached from all that often, not taught from all that often, uh, but it's a book that I'm really excited about. It's a book that several years ago I was in a class, um, the book was taught, and it really had a, a deep impact on me uh, because I think it's particularly relevant to our time and place. And so I hope that as we go through it, uh, you'll come to appreciate Habakkuk as much as I do. A little word about scheduling is um, obviously today will be the first sermon in the four-part series. Next week will be the second, then we'll have a little break, and then the third and fourth parts of the series will be the first two weeks in November. So I hope that, if at all possible, um, all of you will be able to join us as we study Habakkuk together. As we begin our study this morning, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for the many rich ways that you've blessed us. Father, we acknowledge to you that we recognize and see some of those ways, but Father, in we know that in many ways and many times we're um, oblivious to the ways that you're blessing us, oblivious to the ways that you're working in our world. And I pray, Father, that you'll open our eyes and open our hearts and open our understanding so that we will see you at work at all times in everything. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for books like Habakkuk. Father, I thank you for faithful men like your prophet Habakkuk. Father, I pray that um, as we look at at his words, we look at his exchanges with you, that we will come to an understanding of uh, who you are, who he was, but more importantly, Father, um, how we can interact with you and interact with the world that surrounds us. And Father, I pray this through Jesus, who we acknowledge as our Savior. Amen. So Habakkuk, um, I, I just like saying it, so... Get prepared to hear me say Habakkuk a lot. I like saying that a lot. Um, one of the things that I'm going to want you to have in front of you is the insert from the bulletin. So if you don't have a bulletin, this would be a good time to kind of go over to one of the racks around and get one and pull out the insert. The insert is the one that has the daily prayer and Bible reading topics in it. It also has something that's entitled Habakkuk, Living by Faith, Selected Timeline for Background and Context. Um, that's going to be printed in the bulletin all four uh, weeks that we're studying in Habakkuk just to kind of help us uh, place Habakkuk in time and space. And that's something that we're going to need to do today. And then also on the very back of that insert, you'll find the outline of today's sermon so that you can fill in, um, take notes as we speak about it. But if you would get one of those and have it in your hands, that would be helpful for all of us. I also would like for you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Habakkuk. Now, that's not a joke. Um, finding Habakkuk can be a challenge, though, right? So it's okay. Don't be embarrassed if you have to use your index. Um, Habakkuk is a little bitty book that's kind of nestled in among a bunch of other little bitty books towards the end of the Old Testament. In fact, Habakkuk, Habakkuk is the 35th of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Um, so if you end... You know, if you're shuffling through and you end up in the New Testament, you've gone too far, just back up a little bit and find it. In my Bible, it takes less than three pages. Um, it's only three chapters long, so it can be difficult to find. But if you would locate it, that would be great. Habakkuk is one of the so-called minor prophets. 
um, one of several minor prophets. They're known as minor prophets not because they're not important, not because they're of minor importance. They're known as minor prophets just because what we know about them and what they've written and the books that bear their names are so short uh, compared to some of the longer prophets. So Habakkuk is minor only in the length of his book, not minor in what he has to teach us. There are several challenges we face when we decide to study a book like Habakkuk. Uh, one of the challenges that we face is that if we don't have some sense of time and place and what's going on in the world at the time that the prophet is working, it's really difficult for us to understand what's going on. It's really difficult for us to understand the words that they're saying. It's difficult for us to understand the lessons that they can teach us. So that's a real challenge is understanding that context and that setting. And we're going to spend a few minutes this first week kind of talking about that, uh, putting Habakkuk in a particular context, in a particular setting. It's important that we understand that Habakkuk lived in a very specific time where there were specific world events going on, world events that, that we can talk about that will help us understand what Habakkuk has to say for us. Um, and understanding that world and understanding that time and understanding that place will really help Habakkuk come alive for us this morning and in the weeks to come. The second challenge we often face in studying books like Habakkuk can be language and can be structure of the book, um, especially when we're looking at prophetic books. A lot of times there's a lot of imagery and symbolism that's difficult to understand. Uh, fortunately for us, Habakkuk doesn't have a lot of that. Habakkuk is fairly straightforward, fairly straightforward both in language and fairly straightforward in structure. The way Habakkuk is structured is Habakkuk starts out his book by by crying out to God, by calling out to God, by praying to God. And then God answers Habakkuk, and that's recorded for us. Um, and in God's reply, Habakkuk comes up with additional questions. And Habakkuk is perplexed, and he's confused by what God said, so he responds to God with more questions. He doesn't understand, so he asks for clarification. And God responds back to him another time, clarifying what went on. Habakkuk's not crazy about God's answer, but Habakkuk is accepting of God's answer. And then the book closes with Habakkuk back in prayer to God. But his closing prayer, if you will, his ending prayer is very different in tone than the interchanges that he had with God earlier in the book. A fascinating book um, and one that we can understand and doesn't present a lot of structural challenges like some other books might. Well, the final challenge in studying books like Habakkuk has to do with perceived relevance. It's really easy for us to sit here in 2013 and wonder, what does a book about a guy who lived some 2,700 years ago, who was a Jewish prophet, who walked on the earth in a very different place, have to do with us? How can that possibly have any relevance for us? Well, I think as we go through the book of Habakkuk, you'll come to understand that the world that Habakkuk lived in has a lot of parallels to the world in which we live. I think you'll understand that Habakkuk's response as a faithful man of God can teach us a lot about our response as faithful people of God when things around us don't seem to be going like they should be, when it's difficult to see where and how God is working in the world around us. Um, I think Habakkuk is very relevant to our time and very relevant to our place. 
Uh, first, let's position Habakkuk in time. Let's put him uh, where he belongs in the history of God's people. If you'll notice on your timeline, you'll notice that my timeline that I included begins in the year 745 B.C. That's not an arbitrary number. I chose 745 B.C. because that's when we understand that the Assyrians began to really dominate what we now call the ancient Near East. This area that you can see on the map above you um, in yellow. Um, the Assyrians dominated that entire area, area that's known as the Fertile Crescent, an area that now we call the Middle East. Uh, 745 is when that began. So 745, that's some 200 years after the death of Solomon. And so the death of Solomon some 200 years before that signaled what? Well, it signaled civil war in Israel. It signaled the division of the kingdom from a united kingdom into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. It signaled that no longer do we have one country with its capital in Jerusalem, but now we have two countries, Israel to the north with Samaria as its capital and Judah to the south with Jerusalem as its capital. And we have two lines of kings that begin. So the first king in the north, the first king in Israel was who? Was Jeroboam. And the first king in the south was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was David's grandson, Solomon's son. Southern kingdom, Judah. Northern kingdom, Israel. So we're at some at point some 200 years since Solomon's death. And those have been, in many ways, very difficult years. Um, difficult in the north and difficult in the south, but definitely very difficult years in the north. Because in the north, it's one evil king who follows another evil king who follows another evil king. And when you read the account in Second Kings or Second Chronicles, you get the idea that maybe each king is just trying to be more evil than the king who came before him. One evil king after another. So there's idolatry, there's disobedience, there's detestable practices that are going on. And despite the best efforts of God's prophets, prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Hosea, Israel's kings and Israel's people just continue to turn away from God. Difficult years. So meanwhile, down south in Judah, things are marginally better. We have a mixture of good kings and a mixture of bad kings. Uh, but one thing proves to be a constant. And that's the lure of idol worship. That's the lure of uh, other gods. And that lure proved to be a persistent and recurring issue with the people of Judah. So we have this map up here. Let's talk a little bit about what we can see. I'm going to try to use um, a laser printer here. Did it work? Okay. So in time and place, so let's look at place. So if we look up here, there's Jerusalem. And just to the north of it is Samaria. The dividing line between the northern and southern kingdoms was between Samaria and Jerusalem. So Judah is basically Jerusalem south. Israel is basically Samaria north. So you'll also notice that this is a large area under control of Assyria. Assyria headquartered up here. Babylonia more down in this area. Egypt we see here. The Mediterranean here. To give us some context, some place. Modern day, what would we find? Well, today, Egypt is still in this area. Saudi Arabia is in this area. Iraq is in this area. Iran 
is in this area, Jordan down south of Israel and Syria north of Israel. That's where this is occurring. So if we think the, the trouble that's going on in the Middle East now is something new, this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Assyria was a powerful, a very aggressive country, constantly seeking to expand its influence and seeking to expand its borders. And they were the dominant power in this entire highlighted region. So both Israel and Judah are in very precarious positions. They're small countries with not a whole lot of influence, surrounded by a very aggressive and very powerful country. This precarious position resulted in the defeat of Israel, the destruction of Israel and its capital of Samaria in about 722 B.C. 722 B.C. And the Syrians did something interesting when they would conquer a country. They would take the residents of that country, the, the people who lived there, and they would move them elsewhere into another country that they had conquered. But they wouldn't leave it empty. What they would do is they would take people from a country that they had conquered and they would move them into the newly conquered country. So what you would have now in Israel is you'd have it populated, but it wouldn't be populated with Israelites. It would be populated with people from a variety of different countries who the Assyrians had conquered. And those people came to be known as the Samaritans, named after Samaria. So when we read in the New Testament about the Samaritans and how they were despised by the Jewish people, those people are the descendants of the ones who were taken and put in to Israel, resettled into Israel. So Israel disappears, essentially goes away, its people taken elsewhere. Judah is left in even a more precarious position because now they are truly alone. But somehow they manage to hang on. Somehow they manage to keep their country intact. And a lot of that has to do with the guidance of a king that's known as Hezekiah and also the prophet that worked with him that we call Isaiah. And we can read in our Bibles about how God miraculously delivered Judah. Uh, God miraculously delivered Jerusalem from the hands of the Assyrians. Fascinating reading. And so Judah manages to stay intact, manages to stay in place. But it was temporary. Because unfortunately, when King Hezekiah died, it was the beginning of a, a long descent into evil practices, into disobedience, into idol worship. It was interrupted. It was interrupted by King Josiah. King Josiah was a, a boy when he became king. The temple was in disrepair. The temple was being repaired. They found the book of the law, and Josiah was very struck by the book of the law. And he instituted reforms, and he brought about um, the, the practices of, of actually following God and getting rid of idol worship and the places where idols were worshipped. So it was a time of resurgence. It was a, a time of renewal in Judah's history. The glory days, one more time, showed up for Judah under King Josiah. But it was short-lived because in 609, Egypt, who's always lurking at the border of Judah, took advantage of Assyrians, the Assyrians' weak position, their weakened position, and Egypt moved in on Judah. There was a battle. King Josiah was killed, and Egypt took over control, took over influence of Judah. 
But Egypt's control wasn't destined to last very long either because the Babylonians are growing in strength and the Babylonians are growing in power and the Babylonians are lurking on the horizon. In, six, in, in 605, the Babylonian forces move in on Egypt, defeat them, and if we look at the second, we have it up there, this entire area, almost the same area that the Assyrians dominated is now dominated by Babylonian, by Babylonia, by the Babylonians. So that's the world that Habakkuk lived in. See, Habakkuk lived in a world where the once powerful nation of Assyria uh, was very much on the decline, didn't have the influence that they used to have, but their religious influence, their pagan practices continued to contaminate the life of Judah. And then there's another pagan nation, Egypt, as a result of its proximity to Judah. Its pagan religious practices continue to contaminate the life of Judah. And then there's a third country, a third pagan country, and that's Babylonia, another pagan nation. It's moved ever closer to Judah and Jerusalem, and its influence is also contaminating the life and the practice of Judah. That's the world that Habakkuk lived in. And if all the external problems weren't bad enough, Habakkuk Habakkuk lived in a time of internal problems as well. We don't know exactly which kings were on the throne while Habakkuk was working, while Habakkuk was being a prophet for God in Judah. But we do know that all the kings that possibly could have been in power during his time are identified as evil kings, as kings who are unfaithful to God. Listen to these descriptions of the kings of Judah who reigned around the time of Habakkuk, around the time that Habakkuk served God. You can find these kings in the book of 2 Kings. The first one we find in the 23rd chapter of 2 Kings, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, King Jehoahaz, I like saying that word too. He was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for three months. But in that three months, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. The next king, King Jehoiakim, he was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. And in chapter 24, we find the next king, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. He also reigned in Jerusalem for three months. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. And finally, also in chapter 24, we read about King Zedekiah. Zedekiah Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. So that was Habakkuk's working environment, if you will. Habakkuk's working environment as a prophet called to be God's messenger to the people was this. He's serving in a country that's surrounded by evil, 
surrounded by evil countries, surrounded by evil influences, surrounded by pagan practices. Assyria, Babylonia, and Egypt. But it's not just that. Judah itself is evil. He works in a country that's evil at the top. It's evil at the bottom. It's evil to its very core. That's the working environment that Habakkuk was in. And as the memories of the glory days of King Josiah fade further and further into the rearview mirror, I understand they didn't have rearview mirrors, but that's what we're going to use. Habakkuk, the faithful servant of God, reacted to the evil around him in the only way that he knew how. And that was crying out to God. That was going to God in prayer. He cried out, he called out, he prayed out, he poured out to God his questions. How long? Oh Lord, how long? Why? Oh Lord, why? And that's our key point this morning that you'll find on your outline. I want us to all understand is that God welcomes, God welcomes and he answers the questions of his faithful servants. God welcomes and answers the questions of his faithful servants. Just as God welcomed and answered the questions of his faithful servant Habakkuk, he welcomes and answers the questions of his faithful servants today. See, it's important that we recognize that when Habakkuk cried out to God with questions, he wasn't demonstrating a weak or a wavering faith. No, that's not true. Habakkuk's questions came from a deep place of faith. See, Habakkuk believed that God couldn't possibly be pleased with what was going on in the world. See, Habakkuk had faith that God was capable of doing something about the evil that he saw all around him. Habakkuk had faith that God actually heard his questions. And Habakkuk had faith that God would answer his questions. See, Habakkuk's questions are a sign of faith, not a sign of weakness. See, faith does want to know when. Faith does want to know why. Faith does want to know who. And faith wants to know what. And faith wants to know how. Those questions come from faith. See, God doesn't call us to have blind faith. God doesn't call on us to have ignorant faith. God welcomes and answers our questions because he has the answers. Our God has nothing to hide. See, unfortunately, I'm afraid we sometimes act like we believe that questions aren't welcomed by God. And sometimes I'm afraid we act like questions aren't welcomed in the church. And sometimes I'm afraid that we act like questions aren't welcomed by our brothers and sisters. And I think that we believe that questions are a sign of disobedience or questions are a sign of rebelliousness. But I think God's interaction with Habakkuk teaches us that that's not true. I have a friend who had this experience in her church as she was growing up. She was part of a class that was designed to teach the basic beliefs and the basic doctrines of the church that she was attending. This class was designed for adolescent boys and adolescent girls, and it was taught by one person, an official of the church. And my friend related this story, that she was the child who constantly had her hand up during the classes. And every time that she was called on, she had a question. 
And she had all kinds of different questions, but most of her questions were why questions. Why this? Why that? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And she said that she sensed that the guy teaching the class was becoming a little bit uncomfortable and a little irritated with all of her questions, but she continued to ask the questions that occurred to her. And that continued on until her mom took her aside. And her mom had a conversation with her that was a result of a conversation that the mom had had with the teacher of the class because the teacher of the class had taken the mom aside and said, could you please have your daughter be quiet in class? She needs to stop asking so many questions because with her asking questions, other kids are starting to have questions. And we just can't have people asking questions. Being the obedient child that my friend was, she stopped asking questions. She kept her mouth shut. She kept her hand down for the rest of the class. The class ended. They had a little ceremony at the end of the class, and they presented my friend with a plaque. And the plaque said on it, Most Improved Christian. She got a plaque for being the most improved Christian. How had she improved? She'd improved by going from asking questions to just keeping everything inside her. That's a dangerous position to be in. That's a dangerous thing to teach people, that questions aren't welcomed, questions aren't embraced by God, by the church, or by your brothers and sisters. See, a good Christian isn't a silent Christian. A good Christian doesn't swallow their questions because they are afraid that God or others will question the strength of their faith. And just like a good Christian isn't a silent Christian, a good prophet is not a silent prophet. And Habakkuk is a good prophet. So now let's reread Habakkuk's questions. And let's see what we can learn from this faithful man of God. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Habakkuk says this. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help or cry out to you? Violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Deep, penetrating, difficult questions that Habakkuk is asking of his God. And so what do we learn from Habakkuk? What do we learn from those questions? What do we learn from God's faithful servant as he cried out to God? Well, I think the first thing that we can learn is that faithful prayer is persistent prayer. I think we need to understand that this isn't the first time that Habakkuk has cried out to God for help. This isn't the first time that Habakkuk has called out to God to view what's going on in the world and act. See, Habakkuk has been persistently pouring his heart out to God because he knows that God hears him and because he knows that God will take action against evil. See, this prayer that we read from Habakkuk is the persistent prayer of a faithful servant given to his faithful God. Habakkuk is boldly asking his faithful God to take action and to take action now. 
so I think we learn that faithful servants then and faithful servants now will persist in their prayers to God. Well, I also think that we learn from Habakkuk that faithful servants will have a concern for the state of the world that is around them. Notice Habakkuk's concerns. Habakkuk is concerned about violence. Habakkuk is concerned about injustice. Habakkuk is concerned about conflict. He's concerned about strife. Habakkuk is concerned that the wicked are in control and that righteous people are being punished for following God. Habakkuk's concerns aren't selfish concerns. Habakkuk is crying out to God on behalf of a world that is in desperate need of justice. He's crying out on behalf of a world that is in desperate need of peace, a world that's in desperate need of God. Habakkuk is calling out for God to make things right in a world that's gone terribly wrong. And what we can learn is that faithful servants then and faithful servants now will cry out to God with their concerns about a broken world. But what else can we learn from Habakkuk's prayer to God? Well, we can learn from Habakkuk that faithful servants will be concerned about the reputation of God's name. The reputation of God's name. See, Habakkuk is concerned that God is being viewed by other people as being absent. He's concerned that God is being viewed as powerless. He's concerned that God is being viewed as inferior to the gods of the Assyrians, as inferior to the gods of the Egyptians, as inferior to the gods of the Babylonians. And that really bothers Habakkuk. See, Habakkuk knows about God's power. Habakkuk knows about God's reach. Habakkuk knows about God's control. And out of that knowledge, Habakkuk is crying out to God so that God will make himself known in powerful ways to a world that desperately needs to know God. So we learn that faithful servants then and faithful servants now will call out to God to make himself known to a seemingly godless world. And finally, in his prayer, I think Habakkuk teaches us that faithful servants know that God is at work, even when it isn't apparent. Habakkuk's prayer isn't the prayer of someone searching for God. Habakkuk's prayer isn't the prayer of someone trying to wake God up. No, Habakkuk's prayer is a prayer of someone who is desperately searching, desperately looking because they want to see the way that God is at work because they know he is at work. Habakkuk knows that God hasn't gone away, but he can't understand why he doesn't see evidence of him moving powerfully in the world. So Habakkuk, in his concern, cried out to God, and he begged God to show what he was doing. He pleaded with God to show how he was at work. And from Habakkuk, we can learn that faithful servants then and faithful servants now will continue that prayer. We'll continue to pray to God, God, we know you are at work. God, show us how you are at work. So now what? What do we do with these lessons that we have gotten from Habakkuk? What can we do in response 
to those things that we have learned? Well, I think first and foremost, what we can do is we can cry out to God. We can call out to God. We can bring our questions. We can bring our concerns. We can open our hearts to him. We can open our thoughts to him. We can open our souls to him. But I want to encourage you to cry out, to call out to your God. And I also think that we can all practice persistence. Don't stop calling out. Don't stop crying out. Don't stop opening yourself up to God. Continue to do that. Even when it seems to you that your prayers aren't being answered, call out to God. Continue to ask, how long, O Lord, how long? Continue to ask, why, O Lord, why? Continue to ask, when, O Lord, when? See, those aren't questions that demonstrate a lack of faith. Those are questions that are rooted in faith. Rooted in the faith that God is at work in the world right now. Rooted in the faith that his will is being done. And rooted in the faith that his actions will become evident to you and to the world. What else can we do? I think we can all cry out to God about the state of our world. I think we can bring to God the injustices that we see. I think we can bring to God the violence that we see. I think we can bring to God our concerns over the conflict and strife that we see in our world. We can bring to God our pain over the suffering of righteous people at the hands of wicked people. We all need to understand this world that we live in is not the world that God desires. This world is not in the state that God intended. And we as faithful servants should cry out to God, asking him to make things right. I think also we can share with Habakkuk a deep concern for the reputation of God's name. See, too many people in our world don't know God. Too many people in our world don't know his power. Too many people don't know his faithfulness. Too many people don't know his justice. Too many people don't know his mercy. Too many people don't know his majesty. And that should concern us. That God doesn't have the reputation among the world that he should have given who God is. And we, as faithful servants, should cry out to God to make his name known, to make his presence known. We should cry out to God to make his name known in powerful ways in our time. And we should cry out to God to use us to make his name known in this world that we live in that is in desperate need of knowing God. And finally, the last thing I want to suggest that we can all do is we can prepare ourselves. We can prepare ourselves for some surprising answers to the questions that we bring to God. I'll end with one more reading of Habakkuk's questions. But this time, I'll also read the very first part of God's reply to Habakkuk's questions. So listen again. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, 
must I cry out for help or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And God is not silent. God responds to Habakkuk with these words. God says to Habakkuk, he says, Habakkuk, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And that's my final invitation today for all of us. Let's all cry out to God, but let's all cry out to God with the expectation that if we watch, if we examine, we'll be utterly amazed as God does unbelievable things during our days. Please come back next week for more time with Habakkuk, and we'll learn about having faith even in the midst of confusion. If there's any way that we can help you, any way that we can be in service, we'd like to ask you to come to the front as we sing this next song. So please stand and sing with us.